Hi, everyone. FYI, this episode of Silvacast is being recorded virtually. It is a pandemic after all. So please excuse any funky audio issues. You know what I mean. Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we're both silviculturists with Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your host for today's show. Good morning, Bradley. Good morning, Gregor. Well, guess what? We're going to really take it up a notch today on Silvacast. And why is that? Well, I'm going to just hold off a minute on that for a surprise. But first, I would like to announce we have a winner of last month's Trivia Limerick. Cool. Cool. You know, I forgot about the limerick. Now, how did that? Oh, yeah. Here. Okay. I've got it right in front of me. Here it is. It went, there once was a silviculturist bold, the pitfalls of high grading foretold. He came from the East and published 147 papers, at least, to help foresters better manage hardwoods for gold. So who was our lucky winner? I thought you forgot what the limerick was. Uh, Well, you know, I cheated. I cheated. (laughs) Well, Brad, uh, our winner was Joe from Eldora, Iowa. He nailed it with the correct answer, which he sent, who is Dr. Ralph Nyland? So, and maybe Joe's a little confused, like you don't have to put your an- answer in the form of a question for, oh, well, that's, for that's us, a, do you? No, I mean, that, that's fine. He's probably used to, like us, playing Treeperty, Free Jeopardy. So no, he just... That- Yeah, we'll have that on a future episode because that is a good time. Yeah, in any event, nice work, Joe. Uh, Thanks for listening and thanks for playing the trivia. We should do that again, Greg. What do you think? We'll we'll do something. We'll put something together. And Joe, if you're listening, we've already put something in the mail for you. So congratulations. I'm sure your prize will be extraordinary. It will be astounding. Astounding. That was the word I was looking for. That's right. And that's right. Do, are keys involved in it? <laughs> no. Okay. No uh, keys. No. All right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We changed <laughs> no, that then. All right. right. You know, Greg, Ralph Nyland is sort of a personal hero of mine. He is, after all, one of the nation's leading silviculturists and literally wrote the book on silviculture. Yes, I do know that, Brad. Silviculture, Concepts, and Applications. I believe you have an autographed copy? I do. I have it under lock and key. I have a little light on it so the whole family can see it and they don't like to hear about it that much. Uh, But I also have a sticker up next to my desk here that says WWRD. What would Ralph do? Oh, (laughs) really? I was going to ask what the WWRD was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Now we know. Tattoo might be coming. (laughs) So anyway, you're going to be just shocked and surprised because that is our surprise today. Today on Silvacast, we'll be talking with none other than Dr. Ralph Nyland, Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus at SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. We're going to talk with Ralph today, particularly about hardwood silviculture and maybe a special emphasis on that sometimes misunderstood regeneration method of single tree selection. But I'm sure we're going to talk about other things too. Yeah, and full disclosure, yeah, I knew about the surprise. In fact, I was so inspired, Greg, I spent some time in my garage this weekend, 
So you know I like to tinker with stuff, right? If people only knew the stuff that comes out of that garage, but Greg, they I'm would sure be frightened. This is legal, though. This is legal. I was <laughs> so inspired by having him on the show, I made this. Oh, good Lord. What's that? It's, it's the Ralph Nyland action figure. You're, you're going to love this thing. It's going to be perfect. <laughs> Here, now, pull the string. Well, first, no, you don't pull his finger. Pull the string. <laughs> That's built in, but don't do that. So pull the string. Well, once a run, always a run. All right, Greg, pull it again. Need to hope the future. All right, one more time. Skill, patience, deliverance. Brad, I can't believe it. You made a Ralph Nyland action figure. Well, okay, actually, it's an old G.I. Joe that we just kind of converted. But you get the idea. You just clip this onto your cruising vest, and anytime you find yourself in a stand where you need some sage silvicultural advice, just pull on the string. Okay, Brad, let's, let's just hide that thing before our guest gets here. Today's episode of Silvacast is brought to you by STS Fitness Centers. Your max diameter got you down? Tired of that old pot belly curve? This year, let us help you achieve the diameter distribution of your dreams. Wow. In all seriousness, this episode of Silvacast is brought to you by the Wisconsin Forestry Center's new Forest Management for Wildlife Certificate Program, a credentialed training series designed to recognize experienced natural resource professionals with the knowledge and skills to execute forest management with a wildlife habitat emphasis. Check it out and register at the WFC website. Welcome to Silvacast, Ralph. It is really good to see you again. Last time we saw you in the state was at our SAF meeting, and we're really honored to have you here today speaking with us on Silvacast. Well, I'm glad to join you today and to share some thoughts with all those folks who are bumping along distant forest roads going somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Wherever. Well, I agree with Greg. It's, it's really good to have you on the show. And maybe you could just give us a little background, Ralph, on, on how you got started in, in forestry. It's hard to remember. I cannot remember ever wanting to do anything else. And I, I think it started back when I was in seventh or eighth grade. As I got to toward high school, my father introduced me to David Cook. And he owned a 125-acre property east of Albany called the Cook Trucks Forest. And David uh, mentored me. So I would go Saturdays to his property and work with him and, and see things going on and learn about silviculture and forestry. And and that just cemented my interest in forestry and determination to become a forester. So I went off to college when the time came. So, Ralph, for uh, the Lake States foresters who have not been able to work with you directly and just may not know your background as well, how long have you been involved in hardwood research? I know at SUNY University. Well, it started in uh, 1967, actually, when I when I joined the faculty as a part of the Applied Forestry Research Institute and, and had a responsibility for establishing hardwood research, applied hardwood research in that institution. And then in 1970, I was appointed to the teaching faculty and that gave me an opportunity to continue with the work. And even today, I'm still doing some things with 
data that are stockpiled in the computer, but it's been going on for a long time. And I know you mentioned um, when we were in, when we saw you in Stevens Point at the Society of American Foresters meeting, I think you mentioned there that you actually worked in the field for a while before that too, right? Yes, I did. I graduated from college and with my master's degree in 59 and went to work for the state of New York and, and worked there for about five years as a field forester doing lots of silviculture, both on public lands and, and helping private landowners. Yep. But a lot of marking, a lot of management planning, a lot mm -hmm. of evaluation. Under the tutorship of three experienced foresters, and do you think that's really influenced like uh, your life as a, as a researcher then too? Uh, yes. Uh, you know, trying, as I tried to do silviculture every day, I always come up with lots of questions. My colleagues as well. Things like, uh, why do I do this rather than that? Or, or what will I do the next time? That was a big question. What do I do the next time you come back? How much should I leave now? What tree should I leave and take? Those, those kinds of questions were helped me to appreciate that we were depending on research to find solutions to the challenges we face day to day. And, and that research needed to be directed towards the questions that people are asking. I wanted to do things that would help me every time I pulled my boots on and went into the forest. Well, I know, and, and along that same line, I know that there was a talk and I, I saw it online and I, I thought it was just fantastic, but but there was a line in there that was it really made me think. And you said that you thought maybe organized forestry had failed and that maybe we've lost our way. And, and I don't know if that was re research. Are those related? Well, yes and no. I, I think we will always need applied research. We'll always need yep. research focused specifically on the kinds of questions that foresters are asking. I'm going to say more important than that, we, we need a, a renewed commitment to the basic tenets that define forestry as a profession. We need to start focusing more on long-term perspectives rather than choosing only that practice or opportunity would maximize or, or optimize short-term gains. We need to commit to sustaining the vitality of forests and sustaining their benefits into the future, causing no irreversible ecologic change. And we do that by maintaining trees after trees, protecting soil stability, perpetuating the kind of forests and structures that will serve a person's long-term interest. Silviculture does this. It, by, by its very character, it takes the long-term perspective. I would be arguing that we need to commit to practicing silviculture, and unless we do that, uh, things will not get better. We'll still continue to see extensive exploitive harvesting across the country. Forestry is on the verge, I think, of becoming something that looks for saleable volume, puts a value on it, and finds out how to extract it at the least cost. That's not forestry. I know, Ralph, you've long kind of talked about that difficulty with diameter limit cutting that we have, especially in the eastern hardwoods. And so I'm just thinking as you're talking about how do we get out of that cycle? Is it for foresters making that long-term commitment to practicing sound silviculture? I mean, there's a lot of different players in this, but how do we get out of that cycle of exploiting these hardwoods, but managing them rather long-term? Yes, a, a commitment to silviculture is the best alternative, the only alternative to exploitation. So we need to uh, consider the residual stand, 
and how it will grow and develop, how it will sustain those benefits, and when we're going to come back for additional treatments. Or if something has reached the maturity in the multi-age stand or single, how are we going to regenerate it effectively so we are we're looking to the future. We're always looking to the future. What we do today is to set the stage for what comes next, not mm -hmm. just extracting products to sell. Yeah, I, I, Greg, we have that conversation here all the time about people using the term silviculture as a, as a kind of a synonym for timber harvesting. And I think that's kind of maybe evidence of what you were talking about, Ralph, is that once you basically say silviculture means this, then we really get pigeonholed as a profession. Yes, and in fact, unfortunately, you find it all through the literature. We're talking about final harvests and about harvest cuttings rather than regeneration methods. And we, we've got to get out of that kind of sloppy. And I can't imagine a doctor talking about uh, that, that thing that hangs off your knee. They, you know, that's what we're doing when for that, that things that comes by, you know, it, well, if it happens, it happens, but let's get it done right now. And we've got to get away from that. Mm -hmm. if don't uh, forestry and civil culture will, will fail to exist. I think that talking about hardwoods and this idea of long-term management is a good segue. Uh, Brad and I were talking initially, you know, there's so many things we'd like to cover with you, Ralph, and we have a short time and a podcast. So we thought, a good thing to focus on is northern hardwood management, um, yeah. and in particular, uneven age systems like single tree selection. Because I know that Brad and I have lots of conversations with our foresters here in the Lake States about that system, and we seem to struggle with it for various reasons. So we thought that would be a good thing to focus on. Yes. And it feels to me, Greg, like we oftentimes struggle with, I think what you were just saying, sloppy thinking. And so oftentimes we see, and Greg, maybe you can chime in here too, but we, I think we see people thinking that, that single tree selection is selecting trees, which is basically the equivalent of thinning and really not thinking about regeneration or just kind of missing the big picture of what we're trying to do and what we're trying to achieve in uneven age management. That's right. The important is that we should be applying civil cultural systems. Right. That forces us to take the long-term perspective of what happens in the future and not the present. And it means that when the, an age class is immature, we'll tend it. And when it's mature, we'll replace it with a new age class. We regenerate it. So regeneration and tending go together, and we just use timber harvesting as a means to an end. Do you see, Ralph, confusion among foresters sometimes between thinning or tending? strictly versus when they're trying to apply single tree selection? Absolutely. The, the, the big the important question here, do I have an even age stand or an uneven age? And I don't see a lot of people working hard to get that right. In Northern hardwood forest type, we have an important component of shade tolerant trees, sugar maple, beech, but sugar maple is the classic one. So you just can't look at the diameter distribution in the stand and and make a judgment about the age distribution. You need to evaluate a bunch of other things like tree height of the small ones in relation to the big ones. You need to compare the characteristics and the bigger of the small trees compared to the larger ones. And selection system will work if you have that diversity of ages, but it will fail 
if you try to apply to a single age class. And we have the evidence for that. Does it depend on, and, and, and hearing you say that, does it depend on, say, like a, how long something has been suppressed or maybe a growing stock classification for that stuff that say, like, it's maybe it's the same age, but it's slightly smaller. But is there a point, like, maybe sometimes they're useful, but sometimes the trees aren't useful in that situation? It probably relates to the bigger, which is related to the crown. In uneven age stands, for example, we find that small, medium sized, and large trees will, will have a live crown ratio of about 40 to 60%, particularly in managed stands. So, those small trees, if you look at them, nearly half of the height of the tree is occupied by living branches. Now, you go to even age stands, and the dominance may have 30% of the tree bearing live branches. The co-dominance will be 20 to 25%. The intermediates, if they're lucky, 15%. And the overtop tree is 5 to 10%. So you can look at the trees in the stand and the distribution of the vertical distribution of foliage. In uneven age stands, you see what I call the green wall. You just can't see very far. In even age stands, it's a naked understory. So you can see forever through an even age stand. And that would help us to identify the even from the uneven age. But there are other things. You can look at the bark characteristics. Uneven age stands, the young trees have juvenile type of bark, rather smooth. And then as you go from one size class to the next, the buff bark gets rougher until finally it has a mature look. In even age stands, those small trees have a mature like bark characteristic. And so do the middle sized trees and the big trees. And, and that's, a, that's a sign of the poor vigor which is related to the lack of adequate crown canopy to produce enough photosynthate, keep the tree growing in vigor. I was going to ask you initially, you know, what are the common mistakes that foresters make when deciding about applying single tree selection? And what you described there in terms of that first step of making that mistake of oh, determining whether it's an even age stand or an uneven age stand is something we see commonly. Yes, um, that's the big that's the big determinant and the big problem and the big reason that single tree selection fails. In fact, I, I want to call it single tree selection system in uneven age stands and selection like cutting in even age. Because it's not you're not applying a system, you just you're just thinning or tending or whatever you're doing actually if you keep applying a selection like cutting to an even age stand, you're really cutting out the big trees at each end of time. And that's equivalent to diamond to limit cutting, really, isn't it? Yeah. Similar. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, when you think about that, that we do see, like, like sometimes you, you see the symptoms, but you don't recognize it. And I've heard a lot of foresters in northern Wisconsin and the UP talk about they're just not seeing the expected growth rates in the uneven age or the single tree selection stands. Yes. And it's probably um, exactly what you're talking about. Yes. Let's think about growth for a minute. We've looked at sugar maple <clears throat> individual tree growth, both in even and uneven age stands. Now, in uneven age stands, if you do a cutting, you will see an increase in the tree, in the growth of trees of all sizes, even the small trees. The, the five to nine inch trees, ones in that range, will actually grow more rapidly than the big trees. And 
but they'll all grow better. The sapling growth increases well. So as, as you do cuttings, you're taking away the mature trees and the trees of smaller age sizes and younger ages have the growth to fill in the gaps, to add to production, to compensate for the production that you took out by removing mature age trees. You should then get a fairly constant level of production from one cutting cycle to the next if you apply single tree selection or selection system appropriately and maintain that reverse J structure. Selection cutting will do that, selection system will do that. Now contrast to even age stand, the small trees grew slowly in the past. Remember the same age as the big ones. Mm -hmm. Grew slowly in the past. If you do a cutting, they grow slowly into the future. And we find in fact that if you look at growth of trees in even age stands that were thin, the difference in growth rates between the small and the big trees increases through time. So that the small trees lag farther and farther behind and they just don't move up enough to give you production. Their, their quality is also terrible if you start looking at it. So you're going to, what, what happens in an even age stand, if you keep picking off the big trees, then you get a, you, you leave behind this hump of slow, poorly growing trees that are over top and you get a, a right-hand hump of the trees that are in the main canopy that are growing better. And if you see those small trees will die out and then you end up with something that's somewhat L-shaped. Mm -hmm. It distorts the diameter distribution. You see production drop off because each time you cut, you have fewer and fewer good growing trees left behind and eventually you just run out of things to cut and then you have to rehabilitate the stand by some means. So it's all in the growth rates of the trees and knowing that the small ones in even age stands don't grow, hence once a rut, always a rut. Then is some type of even to uneven age conversion process necessary if they wanna move that stand towards an uneven age condition eventually? Let, let me say that uh, conversion is not necessary, but it may be desired. That is, uh, landowners for at least a period of time have the option of coming in to an even age stand and doing repeated, say, crown thinnings, appropriate thinnings. But at some point, you just run out of trees. And then you have to come to the realization that Either you just let it deteriorate or you replace it with an even age regeneration method. So you do have that option. But so many landowners, especially the non-industrial people, just seem to abhor the idea of clear cutting or even uh, the sheltered method. Because when you mm -hmm. see trees off, it looks like a clear cutting. So that's the case where if you intervene with a conversion, a different kind of a process, you can eventually end up with a multi-age stand. Now, the, the neat part about this is that we found that in 60 to 80 year old Northern hardwood stands, if you do some cutting in the overstory, you usually get a regeneration response and you build up advanced regeneration of diverse species. If you let it go, the shade intolerant ones will, will die off and you end up with primarily shade tolerant ones. So remember those small trees that you leave behind 
are not going to grow anywhere and they are going to cast shade on that advanced regeneration. So I think if you want to do this conversion process, the thing you do is, is wait till the stand is reproductively mature. By 60 or 70 years, it's that stage usually. Mm -hmm. And then you have to thin from below. You have to cut out all the small trees. So then you should get a regeneration and with time, you'll have to come back in and do another treatment. And that would be to cut in the overstory again, lightly. And that will free up, that will brighten the understory so the advanced regeneration have will grow. It'll also create ecologic space to generate a third age cloud. And then you repeat that through time. Now, the problem here is that you only have so many overstory trees. So you have to petition the cut of that original age class well into the future. And it probably is going to take five to seven decades to do this. You might be able to come back after, say, 15 years after the first entry. But remember, you're, you're having fewer and fewer trees left behind, which means you're going to have less and less production. So each entry, you'll have to be going after a minimum operable cut and also extending the cutting cycle so the growth gives you enough to make another operable cut. So that's going to stretch out over time. It will not optimize the yields, but it, it should result in the multi-age stand that you eventually will see as a selection system. It, it feels to me like in some ways, you know, we're kind of coming to a reckoning in a lot of sites because we've had foresters and landowners and county, state, federal, where they've managed with this maybe like selection-like system that you described, thinking they're getting closer to age distribution or at least a, a size distribution that's working, but they're actually getting further away from it. Yes. And so they've actually delayed, they're actually, they, they get to a point where they kind of have to make a decision about either you have to start over or or maybe you have to be a little more severe and what you, you're kind of forced to be more severe because you didn't, didn't get it right the first time. Yes, now one, one of the things they could do is make sure they get rid of all those small trees, but leave a low density of overstory trees at uniform spacing to form a two-age stand. And at least you'd have a two-age stand. That would be a process resembling what, what I call reserve shelterwood method. If you're, if you're lucky and find enough trees, you could do, you could do that in as a three-step stage or two-step stage. So you take, you leave a little bit higher density at first, that creates a, a new age class. <clears throat> and then you come in after time and reduce the stocking of the overstory, leaving some trees behind and get a third age class. You probably can't do that more than three times or three entries, but you would have something that, that has multiple sizes of with trees of multiple ages what we do in the future with those stands, that's, I think it's uncertain. I'm not sure we really know what to do after about the third entry with any of these approaches mm -hmm. that works to take an even age stand and make it into something else. Yeah, that's what strikes me about what you say is just the amount of time you say it takes to get from that even age stand to a condition where you might go to single tree selection and if we're talking, you know, six plus decades, are we even there yet? I, I know with a lot of our stands that we've gone through this conversion process, foresters might be at the third entry, Brad, or the fourth. 
fourth entry maybe? Right. Sometimes third now. Third? Yep. So how do you know when you're ready to take that stand and move it to a single tree selection structure? Or maybe we aren't there yet. Well, I think actually it will be a gradual transition <clears throat> because as you get, let's say you make a cutting and you get a new age class started. Actually, mm -hmm. that starts to grow up and you need to tend that. And while you're tending that, you also need to open up more regeneration space to get a third age class started. And then you wait, you come back again, and now you have two intermediate ages that tend and a new age class to be established. So I think we'll we'll go through a, a time where it's a gradual transition towards a balance on even age stand. So should foresters be thinking that third, fourth entry of looking at the diameter distribution and thinking about, you know, are we getting there or? Uh, looking at the age class distribution and looking at bark characteristics. You know, I, in the first entry of rehabilitation, the first thing I would do is get rid of those understory runs. I mean, they're, they're just funny basal area in a sense of production. Now they have a value in that some wildlife species, the songbirds, will use them. They won't be present if you if you have nothing in the understory. So there may be cases where if you have a, a habitat objective, you want to keep some of those, either in small clusters or 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 some of them. But but from a production viewpoint, they're not going to serve any purpose into the future. So you you get rid of them as soon as you can. In a lot of them, as you do these repeated entries, the big trees will fall down the small ones and take them out. So the process of logging, do this transition, will in fact wipe out a lot of those really small trees. We're really in a dilemma, aren't we? And I think with these kinds of treatments that people have given in even age stands, it's as serious a dilemma as where they've done diameter limit cuts because there, there are a lot of parallels. You have often uh, patchiness in the stand, open spaces. You have uh, trees with a lot of poor quality in them and poor growth. It, it just, it's just not a pleasant situation. There's nothing foresters should have created or tolerated, but we're here. What's insidious about it too is that with, with high grading, we all recognize it as a problem. We all recognize that it's kind of mining instead of forestry. But with yes. this, I think people think they're doing the right thing. Well, and they've been told they're doing the right things for a lot of years, haven't they? Yeah. It's been part of the message that's been carried out from the forestry research centers, unfortunately. So, so now the question is, how do you go about making that transition? And how do you make the switch as, as you, the question you raised earlier? And it's not going to be easy. And we have no sure fixed answers. What I'm hearing you saying is in that transition period is not necessarily just look at the diameter distribution, but as you said, look at the ages, i.e. what's the growing stock quality of those? Do they have the right kind of vigor, crown characteristics, and so on? So, yes. so really assessing the growing stock that you have, not just the diameters. That's right. I, I don't know very many cases where this has happened, but we do have been following one stand where the foresters in charge did a series of uh, crown thinnings, and each time they got a new age class. It started in 1967 or 68, and by 2016, there were 
at least three going into the fourth age class. And you began to see the, the vertical structure developing, that is the foliage of multiple layers. So I know it can be done. In that case, it was done by luck and, and chance, but we need to begin figuring out how to do it deliberately. And, and I know we have some, some places and some owners here in Wisconsin and Greg, I know we have some in Northeastern Wisconsin. I know some in the UP who've been doing some conscientious logging and they've basically been working with single tree selection. And I think they have some multiple age classes. But one thing I've heard them say is that they, I think sometimes people often perceive single tree selection as being very, even when you have that capability, like say we don't have it. And so now we recognize that we have that conversion process, but now they think it's very confined. Like I have to, I, I, I can't bury my, my, di my maximum diameter limit or other things that go with that. And it, it feels to me like it is a little more flexible than maybe what some people perceive. I think it can be. You can go to lo longer cutting cycles, allowing you to keep a lower residual density, which increases your chances of regenerating mid-tolerant species. Uh, you could use a combination of single tree cutting and opening up some fixed area patches, which would give you a chance at the not just the sugar maple, but some yellow birch, for example. And in those openings, the trees would grow faster. But you know, we don't, you have to control yourself and think about balance in the stand. And eventually you would hope for each age class occupying an equivalent amount of growing space. So we're talking about combination of patch cutting and sing, single tree cutting. You probably wouldn't put in something much bigger than a fifth acre patch, about hundred feet across. And you'd probably only put in two of those for every three acres each time you enter. It's not the same as going just cutting a whole bunch of patches aimlessly. It has to be controlled through time. But there are variants you can introduce here that might serve a variety of, or a broader range of landowner objectives. A lot has to start with what does the landowner want and how much important importance does the landowner put on say production versus habitat characteristics versus visual qualities or, or what it, whatever. And, and that, you know, that's what foresters ought to do. And foresters are there to help solve problems. Our problems we solve deal with trees and how they grow and develop and what stands look like and, and what they offer to people. It takes what what's in there between your ears. And I think too often we we put plugs in our ears and just go ahead and whack away at the same old thing and and our creative juices don't flow and, and our we end up in a rut. Yeah. Where we are, I believe. Wasn't there a you guys remember there used to be like a cartoon or something? We've met the enemy and he is us. Yeah. Something Pogo. like that. Pogo, yeah. That's kind of that's that's it reminds me of this that like, yeah, we're we think we're solving the problem, but we're actually part of the problem. Yeah. Now let's I don't want to cast dispersions on everybody uh, because the, you know a lot of things we do we don't know any better but we've come to a point where I, we do know better now we just we've had that research that Sarita Basil did published in the Canadian Journal of Forest Research about a year ago where she compared structural stability in truly uneven age stands managed by single tree selection system versus even age stands given these selection-wide cuttings. And it demonstrated quite dramatically that you must separate 
the age arrangement before you make a decision what to do. And if you try to pretend that the small trees in even age stands are young and will respond, that's the mistake. It won't happen and you will fail. Well, and I think as you said too, as we, even if we're doing it right and we get to the point where we're starting to get three or more age classes, this is all fairly new to us uh, This in this process. We haven't gone through this a lot. So it takes a lot of thinking to start to figure out what that transition looks like. So I yes. think that's just, this is a good conversation. It's something our foresters I know are thinking a lot about and struggle with. Well, I'm glad you're thinking about it and, and struggling with it because if you don't own up to an issue and don't think about it or struggle with it, you can't solve it. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take courage, right? Yep. Ralph, I know one thing I wanted to ask you too is I know a lot of our stands, either through land use or, or poor management, are highly variable today. So that's another thing our foresters struggle with. They go into stands and it seems like, you know, every two chains, it changes the situation. And I'm wondering if these are stands that we're looking at today, we need to be thinking about multiple treatments within a single stand. I know I had heard you say that because of this variability in some of these stands, using a unified system is not always easy. Yeah. Maybe we need to start looking at multiple treatments within a single stand. I'm wondering what you think about that. Yeah, I, I've made that comment primarily with respect to stands that have been gone through a diamond limit cutting or other exploitive practice in the past. There's a, a good amount of work tried up in Canada by John Martin Lussier with the Canadian federal government and Patricia Raymond and the group at Quebec City over uh, St. Floyd and uh, Laura Kennefick with the Forest Service in Maine of looking at these multiple, these stands that have a patchier arrangement that have combination of good trees and bad trees. And, and, and it becomes clear to every one of us that if you go in and try to apply a single kind of prescription, you probably don't make much gain. You will find some places where you've got trees which worth working with them in the future and you can partially cut in those and nurture their growth. Other places you may have a big opening, you have nothing in it. Then you gotta find a way to regenerate those, those openings. You may have places where you have only widely scattered trees of acceptable growing stock. And you might think of something like a shelterwood treatment where you, you get rid of the junk and keep those trees of good quality, uniform spacing as a seed source for new age class. And uh, John Martin has, has felt that in some of the stands they have in Eastern Quebec, they may need as many as four different treatments. So he recommends going through these stands and doing an, an assessment. He, he does inventory and characterizes what variation he has. And then with that, he sets up a, a series of marking guides and, and says, you can find this condition, try something like this. If you find condition number two, try some, et cetera. And uh, he's found that that works. He's even applying it by, by having the operator of a feller buncher make the decisions. Mm -hmm. is within the reach of my boom and I'm going to apply a single treatment to what's within the reach of my boom so what shall it be type one two three or four treatment and it seems to be working for him 
I suppose ecologically that would kind of make, you know, you're getting that diversity of things happening in that stands. That's probably a real benefit to that too. Yes, and you'll end up with a multi-age stand that will will be trees arranged in groups and then scattered individually um, with age classes intermixed or separated. So it, it, it won't it won't mean you will lack challenges in the future, but at least it'll get you to some sort of a, a productive conditions with respect to volume growth or habitat characteristics or whatever it is you're trying to do. Well, I suppose your inventory is going to be different for that, right? Because you're you're basically looking at you're looking at conditions that are occurring within the stand instead of like stand averages or yeah. things like that. Absolutely. What what I've done is uh, I find it's useful to put in a series of sample points at on a grid, and I know where each one is. But when I get it all done, I then characterize each sample point and see. Uh, I usually look at the basal area and acceptable or unacceptable growing stock and put those into piles. And I find what proportion of the stand can be treated by this method or that method. And, and, make, and don't try to come up with a single average relative density for an even age stand or a single cutting prescription for it, but recognize that as I go from place to place, I'll hit different conditions and I will need to adjust at the low density places by cutting intensity be less. High density places, it will be more that kind of thing. So are many people implementing multi multi stand treatments on purpose right now? Well, I think the folks up in eastern Quebec are are doing quite deliberately. Yes, on the Penobscot forest in Maine, but I don't know of very many people who are yeah willing to say that diamond limit cutting is a problem, and the aftermath is a problem. So we need to recognize that we have created an issue before we can go ahead and, and actually deal with it. Isn't that the irony, Greg? This feels to me like conversations we've had where people would say, well, I want to do a lot of different things in the stand. And we're like, no, come up with a prescription. And so we've always kind of poo-pooed the idea of doing multiple things within the stand or your prescription gets really complex. Well, and this is, kind of, this is kind of changing back a little bit. But you know, foresters went to college, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> if they? If they got out of college, they should have had some smarts about them. Or we didn't we didn't provide enough challenges in an educational setting, but they've got the brains to do this. We, we I just find a lot of people not willing to take the time to do it, and it takes information about the stand. But we've got people who are capable of doing that, so let's find a way to motivate them or incentivize them to do it. Yeah, I think uh, what I'm taking from this conversation is that you need to think about these things in treatments in these stands carefully and be very deliberate about what you're doing. And what you're saying, Ralph, is basically use your brain. And it's forestry. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, that's the fun part of forestry, right, is that challenge yeah. of, yes. of trying to figure this out. So I think a lot of foresters enjoy that creative part of it, that challenge of trying to think about what's happening, what's happened in the past. So. I think they're up to the challenge. They just have to be sometimes reminded to be real deliberate and 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 think these things through carefully because there's no easy answers. Right on. Well, I really appreciate having you here um, tremendously today. I think 
all of what we talked about today are things I know that our foresters, especially in Northern hardwoods, have been thinking about and struggling with. And so this conversation hopefully will help them to, to, to think about that more and figure out some answers. That would be great. I just hope they don't run off the road listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't put that past our listeners. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that happens anyway. It's not our fault. <laughs> they may be doing that for a number of different reasons. Yeah, so, no, yeah. We won't yeah. go into that. Yeah, so. we get trucks stuck all the time. It yeah. just happens. So, yeah, thank you very much, Ralph, for yeah, this joining was fantastic. us here today. We'll have to and uh, we'll have to have you back again sometime because I know we've only touched the surface of these topics. Well, let's do it. That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, questions, and tips and share them with our listeners. Hey, Brad. This week in the Dropbox, we received some great suggestions for future shows, things including lowland forest silviculture forest carbon, and a controversial term and movement called proforestation. Excellent. It's always good to have a growing list of topics to cover in the future. Yep. No list is too long, so if you've got good ideas, keep sending them in. We really appreciate it. Well, Greg, that was inspiring. A lifetime working to create practical silvicultural advice and promote forest management. With people like Ralph Nyland, I always wonder, is there something he isn't good at? Now we know one thing he isn't good at. Hey, Brad, it's the booth again. That's pretty exciting. Okay, I'll bite booth. What isn't he good at? Picking what podcast to be on. <laughs> true. That's true. Well, thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. Take care, everyone, and always thanks to our team. Haley Frater, Editor-in-Chief, Noah LeMade, our IT master, our theme music by Paul Frater, and UW-Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center. Take care, everybody.